the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. I am Seth Leibson. She is in much demand. You can see her on Fox, other podcasts, other radio shows. She is Dr. Catherine Coleman. She's a licensed clinical and police psychologist, blessedly based right here in Scottsdale, Arizona. She provides services to first responders, family members, in-service trainings, counseling, and an executive board member of the National Center for the Prevention of Community Violence. You can uh, check out and learn more about Dr. Coleman at her website, drcoleman.com, and she spells her name K-U-H-L-M-A-N. Doctor, welcome to the show, and thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Seth. I'm happy to be here. Well, you bet. We need you. We need you more than we have needed people in your profession ever before, I think. And maybe we can talk about the wholesale cause of all these mental distresses and societal distresses that we're seeming to have to deal with in ways we never did before in a few moments. But let me work uh, from the most current and go backwards. Uh, story you have been talking about for uh, since the day it happened, the tragedy in Uvalde, uh, Texas. We now have a report out, an official report from the legislature there, systemic failures. Almost 400 law enforcement officers were unable to stop a 20-year-old from shooting up a school. Catherine, Dr. Coleman, what do you take from this? What happened in Uvalde from the police enforcement and prevention side? And then we'll talk about what happened from the youth side. Sure. You know, and, and I'll start with this. That You know, as a police psychologist, it, it takes a lot for me to criticize a law enforcement response mm-hmm. because, you know, these, I work with these guys day in and day out, mm-hmm. and, and I've worked with so many officers who have been involved in, in active shooter events and mass casualty. And so, you know, my my initial reaction is always um, that I that I trust the response. But, you know, over the last couple of weeks, we've been learning so much about this shooting. And I think this report um, it really paints a bad picture of the law enforcement response in Uvalde. Um, you know, after Columbine in uh, 1999, the active shooter response protocol changed um, from having a per- law enforcement establish a perimeter and waiting for SWAT to go in so basically, the first officer on scene needs to just rush in um, and try to neutralize the threat. Um, so this has been a training now for for quite some time, and it's pretty obvious that that's not what happened here. And so as you're reading through this report, you know, it describes systemic failures. Um, there were issues with the locks in the school and the, the door. Right. Um, there was no incident command. Um, basically, the police chief of the Uvalde School District kind of took it upon himself to be in charge of the incident. Um, and I don't know his training, but it, based on the fact that there were, you know, almost 400 other responders, I'd, there there may have been somebody more qualified to to lead that charge. Yeah, just as a matter uh, of math, it's hard not. to. Yeah, just as a matter of math, it's hard to see an an eighteen year old up against four hundred officers for an hour, right, in a confined space and situation. <laughs> right, and, and of course, most of those are not in the school. You know, they're they're out on the street. They're, they're yeah. making sure that you know. Cars don't get into the parking lot, and that you know they're going to kind of hold parents back. To so be that, sure, you know, they're not placed at risk. Sure. But 
but but yes, there's there's a lot of people there, a lot of very well trained people there. You mentioned the school and the doors not being locked and all that's 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 right too, and and that's actually an interesting part of the conversation we're not having as much of. I, I think the the police situation is is perhaps. Uh, just more shocking. But on the school end, Catherine uh, Coleman, are there things schools can do better? Yeah, locking the doors to be to be sure, but that's so basic. Are there things you saw with schools either in Uvalde or elsewhere that have faced these things that they could be doing better, uh, maybe with SROs, maybe not? But is, is there something a school can be doing better to prevent these things? Oh, absolutely. Um, so, so before I moved to Arizona, sure. um, I, I did the same work in Colorado and um, I worked actually very closely with uh, school di- the school district that Columbine is in and um, learned firsthand a lot of the, the things that that particular school district had done. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, I feel like they were at the top of their game and, you know, really ahead of their time when it came to school safety. And, you know, they were very clear about making sure that, that the doors were locked at all times. And it was a big deal, you know, if a door was propped open or left unlocked or, you know, students were allowed in a back entrance. Um, and, and there, there were consequences for that. Um, they were, they had not only SROs from the local police department, but the school district also had their own police department with both armed and unarmed, uh, officers that were in the, in the schools. And I'm a huge fan of SROs. Yeah, me SROs, too. Yep. They, they're not just cops, nope. but they, they're mentors, yep. they're teachers, they establish relationships. Um, they, they know so much. Um, but the other thing that I think is really important, not just on the security level, but the fact is, is that we really need students and teachers to understand what warning signs look like, mm-hmm. because they're the ones, they're, they're like the front line. They know what's going on. Students are on social media. They know what each other's thinking. They know who, you know, the weirdos are. And, um, we need them to have effective reporting avenues so that they can, you know, re- report people that are concerning. And they need to be taken seriously. And teachers need to know this, too. They, they can't be worried about offending somebody or getting somebody in trouble. We're talking to Dr. Catherine Coleman. Uh, she is a licensed clinical and police psychologist right here in Arizona. Uh, let me just put this on the table to Dr. Coleman, if I can, uh, because it seems there's there's three factors here that there's the police there's the uh, there's obviously the the aggressor uh, or the assailant or the alleged aggressor and assailant and then there's the school. Before we get to the assailant, the the adolescent or the young adult, which I want to do in a moment. Back to the police, and it's hard to ask about this in a in a in, in a fully it, with all the respect I, I mean to impart when I ask it. But has the attitude, the cultural attitude towards and about the police? Uh, over the past several years, has it led to self-doubt where there should be none in these incidents when police respond? Are the police gripped or in the grip or in the vice grip of self-doubt and hesitation when we need them on the accelerator? Absolutely. I think there's no doubt about it. You know, our our law enforcement have been, I think, so vilified over the past couple of years um, that any time there's there's a critical decision to make, especially when it comes to a use of force, that they sometimes guess you know second guess themselves. They are worried about who's video recording them. Does this have the potential for them to lose their job, for their there to be threats against their family? And so a lot of times they're not relying on their training. They're getting in their heads too much. Yeah, I don't know that that's what happened here. Um, there, there may certainly have been an element of it, 
Uh, but we, we definitely see this, and this is what I'm hearing from many officers. We're talking to Dr. Catherine Coleman. Uh, you can uh, learn more about her at her website, drcoleman.com, and she spells that K-U-H, her last name, K-U-H-L-M-A-N, D-R-K-U-H-L-M-A-N. Dot com. Let's talk about the uh, the uh, these young adults and adolescent shooters. We it looks like had another one in Indiana as well. Is there a common theme? Is there a common uh, is there a common thing to be watching out for? Is there something we're not talking about here enough and sufficiently? What do you say about the kids? They're not all right, are they, Doctor? <laughs> no, the kids are definitely not all right. Um, most are, but uh, there's these there's these few that slip through the cracks. And I think what's really important to keep in mind here is that um, a lot of times when something bad like this happens, there's there's a shooting. We say, well, this person just snapped. What's not coming? There is always planning. Um, there is always warning signs. And typically, there's what we call leakage, which is some kind of broadcast or you know, they say something about what they're going to do. Sometimes it's very obvious and direct. Other times it's veiled and not so direct. Um, but we see this every single time. And nearly 100% of the time, in every single um, act of targeted violence, with the exception, I think, of the Las Vegas shooting, there is an identifiable injustice that this person perceived. Oftentimes it's not real, um, but it could be that they felt bullied, that they felt like girls wouldn't go out with them, that they lost their job, that they were going to lose their job, that they weren't going to graduate, um, or or any combination of, of things. And they become obsessed and they develop grudges, and then this is their you know, this is their way to try to avenge. I want to focus and zero in on that if I can, and I'm up against a commercial break. Can I keep you one more segment? Do you have time for that, Doctor? Absolutely. I really appreciate it. Thank you. We're speaking with Dr. Catherine Coleman, her website, D-R-K-U-H-L-M-A-N. You can also, of course, follow her on Twitter, and I will give you that Twitter handle when we come back from the break. I didn't have my uh, computer up in front of me. But uh, when we come back, I want to ask Dr. Coleman about the signs we should look for in the children, some of the common themes beyond this leakage and what fuels this leakage, and um, also get a sense in the role of A, parenting, but also B, influences like uh, drug abuse and drug use. When we come back, more from Dr. Catherine Coleman. I'm Seth Liebson. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Delighted to have Dr. Catherine Coleman with us. You can follow her on Twitter at Dr. underscore K. Coleman, K-U-H-L-M-A-N, police clinical and forensic psychologist. Uh, doctor, uh, talking about uh, these these adolescent and young adult uh, violent actors, um, common themes, you talked about the leakage, you talked about uh, usually there's, I think you said in almost every case, there there is some broadcasting or some indication. I mean, Uvalde, take Uvalde for a moment with me, if you will. It's a, it's a small city. It's about six times smaller than Tempe. You live in the area. You know Tempe. This kid is walking around, slashing himself, yelling at customers, carrying dead cats. Something, I mean, someone or something needed to or could have been done months in advance of this incident, couldn't it? Oh, absolutely. Months, if not years. Okay. You know, in, in many of these cases, it's just it, it, it takes so long for a person 
usually to get to the point where they're making this decision mm-hmm. um, because it is a big decision mm-hmm. and there's plenty of opportunities to intervene or to try to mitigate. Um, but the problem, in my opinion, is that you know people operate in silos. Mm. You know, we've got law enforcement, they have information, the family has their own information. Maybe there's mental health professionals that have information. Maybe there's human services or um, attorneys or friends. Um, and nobody shares. So we only have one piece of the puzzle and nobody sees the big picture. When we see the big picture, as we do after an event, we can look back and in hindsight say, well, of course, we should have seen this. And but now the it's, is, there is are so many pictures. Before. Yeah, but there are so many pictures now. In addition to what you're saying, it seems to me there are so many pictures now. We have a museum. And and, and it's, as you say, not 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 in a lot of these instances, in almost every incident, uh, we have this. And I'm wondering if there needs to be a discussion about revisiting how we treat involuntary commitment. Well, I think so. You know, um, that's, it's a big deal, I yeah. think. And um, we are so reluctant, I think, to involuntarily commit young people, mm-hmm. um, specifically minors, mm-hmm. because we are worried about, you know, how is it going to affect their mental health? How is it going to affect their socialization? Um, what does this mean for their future? Is it going to, you know, you know, just take things away from them? And uh, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm kind of conservative in it, but, you know, I think I would, if we're seeing all of these warning signs and they make a threat, right, of course, there has to be a threat. There has to be an imminent threat. Yeah. Um, why are we not? Because that, that at the end of the day, it's not that they're being locked up, but we're, we're providing them a resource. I, that's the way and I see maybe it. Maybe that's I, not I, the only thing. Yeah, no, that's more. the way I see it. To let To let someone live in a psychotic state is not helping them. And nor is it helping society and nor is this notion i'm i'm throwing out these opinions for you to certainly argue or or tell me i'm wrong you're the expert if so nor does it seem to me the 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 notion of danger to self or others it doesn't seem to me that a person in the grip of psychosis is able to make that assessment about themselves no and and a lot of these shooters are not you know psychotic in you know the the formal aspect many of them are depressed but but they get these, I think the best way to describe them is, is, is kind of delusions, right? They have these beliefs about themselves or other people that are not completely accurate, um, that, that, you know, thwart them into, you know, this, these, these thoughts and these obsessions and these desires to act. And um, we need to do something about them. We, we sit here and we say, oh, you know, we make excuses for bad behavior. We say, oh, well, they're they're autistic. That's, that's they're, they're just kind of weird. Or... You know, they're, they're depressed. Of course, they're going to threaten to kill themselves all the time. Um, and we, we make excuses for bad behavior, but all that does in the long run is normalize it and actually reinforces it and in some cases actually emboldens people. One, one of the things, Doctor, I've been tracking for some years now is the higher and higher potency of uh, marijuana. And I wonder if you think there's something we're not examining here closely enough when you look at the Gifford shooting here in Tucson or the Aurora, Colorado or the Pulse nightclub or the Sutherland Springs, Texas or the Douglas Parkland, Florida. That's all there, too, often, isn't it? It is, you know, and and part of it, I think, is because, you know, you have people that are going through something in their life and they they turn to self-medication. And, you know, we, we have this myth in society that marijuana is, 
you know, that it's not addictive and that it comes from the earth and that, that it's okay to use and it's not going to do anything. Right. Um, but it is still a hallucinogen. And you mentioned the potency that can, yeah. you know, yeah. it's just, it gets, it's so much more potent than it used to be. It can actually trigger psychosis right. in people. Marijuana induced psychosis. It can psychosis. decrease IQ. Yes, it's not good. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and it's oddly present in almost every one of these 20 and under 20-somethings because it seems, if I'm reading the science right, it seems to do something to the adolescent brain that it may not do to the 40-year-old, perhaps. Well, it's true. You know, the adolescent brain, you know, really, we, our brains are not fully developed until about the age of 25. And the part of the brain that's responsible for logical decision-making and executive functioning skills is our prefrontal cortex. Um, adolescents do not make decisions based on that part of the brain. They make decisions based on the amygdala, which is fight or flight and, you know, instant gratification. And when we introduce substances to the adolescent brain, it, is, it, it sometimes stops but definitely slows down that development um, and sometimes can even permanently pause it if they use enough. Do we have enough people who are in – responsible positions at schools across the country, public, private, I don't care, that understand this point, this problem, the perhaps over-medication of children, but also the illegal substance use of children and the dangers that's presenting, not only to the violent extremes that you and I were talking about, but what you were saying about, you know, the mental, other mental deficits, intellectual deficits, dropouts, for example. Do we, do, do you think society is, is, is well aware of this or has it been, to use a very casual phraseology, has it been brainwashed to think marijuana is just not that dangerous? I think it's a combination of both, and I and I also think you know school psychologists and school counselors um, they do an amazing job, but they are overworked and underpaid, um, and there's not enough of them, and so they are so focused on you know dealing with problematic students and, and helping you know kids with home life issues and that are getting bad grades that sometimes it's it's really difficult I think for them to take a deep dive into some of these other issues. Dr. Coleman, um, I hope this can be a down payment for many return visits. Uh, you are you, you, you take the complicated and make it very apprehensible, and I really appreciate it and love to take advantage of our local national experts when we have them. Uh, if, uh, if you'll uh, consider uh, this as uh, our first visit, I'd look forward to many others in the future. Hopefully over good news rather than bad. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> yes, hopefully, hopefully over good ones. Uh, I, I guess it's it's a weird thing to say. The best thing that could happen to society would be to put you out of business in a way, right? <laughs> to not need people like you. <laughs> yes. Okay. It, it would be, yes. Unfortunately, I've got some good job security. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Dr. Catherine Coleman, bless you and Godspeed. Folks, you can follow her and get everything you need, including a link to her website at her Twitter feed, at Dr. underscore K. Coleman, K-U-H-L-M-A-N. I'm Seth Liebson. Your call, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, portions of which are brought to you by Cool Touch Air Conditioning, Heating, and Plumbing. It's the only company I use. It's the only company my friends use. Cool Touch 
us. If you want to get in touch with them, they're around 24-7 because these problems that you may face, air conditioning, plumbing, they don't just happen Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, do they? Cool Touch is just different. A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, never a complaint with the ROC. And as I say, I use them and have used them for years. Chris Funk and the team, you just won't find a better one. CoolTouch.us or give them a call at uh, 623-748-4942. That's 623-748-4942. I want to put another thought on the table with regard to my uh, talk discussion with Dr. Coleman in a moment. But first, let's go to Rob. Hi, Rob. Oh, hi, Seth. Hope you had a great weekend. I sure did. Um, I was was thinking uh, earlier, I guess, during your semi-first monologue about Mark Kelly. Now, he he went to the Naval Academy, as did I. Uh, He went Naval Aviation, as did I. I did not do the astronaut program. But one of the things that um, really uh, hits us while we're at the Naval Academy is the idea of principle. And one of the great quotes, and I can't remember who wrote it, uh, some naval officer 100 years ago, where a principle is involved, be blind to expediency. Do that again. Uh, Say I that again. I like that, I think. Go where, ahead. Where, where, yeah, where principle is involved, be blind to expediency. Okay, this is that, um, that underlying point is why I disagreed a little bit with the first caller on this who was saying, well, because, you know, he is a military man, you know, he's probably voting against his conscience. I, I don't think military people do that. I They're not supposed to. Right. But again, I think there's also opportunistic uh, military people. And again, because he was married to Gabby Giffords and because of what happened to her, uh, you know, he decided to throw his hat in the ring. Um, but... Uh, what you were saying before, you know, the 50 Republicans that support Mark Kelly, there isn't a single thing. And, and the real giveaway is the 100 percent rating by the NEA, which, as you and Planned Parenthood and zero from NRA and, and the fact that yeah. he opposes tax cuts. I mean, what about this tells you? I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of Republicans. We agree. But on social or economic, you got to give me something to say you're a Republican supporting him for some Republican principle, right? Well, and yeah, and and this goes back to I think what uh, Peter Schweikert was talking about, where it's uh, money, vanity, and something else. He had three big things that he used to talk about and still does, I think. So uh, maybe there's some vanity going on there, maybe because. Uh, you know, he had been an astronaut. We're dealing with large egos. And yet he goes on to the dark side, the Democrat side, where, you know, he's, yeah, like you said, he's going to support Chucky Schumer. And But he may not have wandered over there. He may have been there. I'm not quite sure I fully apprehend this notion that because military equals conservative, it's not ever been true. No, it, it isn't. But it, it, John Kerry, yeah. George McGovern, Franklin Roosevelt was the secretary of the Navy. I mean, it just it doesn't. Yeah. Right. It doesn't always well, mean yeah. conservative. Yeah. But I, I look at Mark Kelly as, as a, almost the ultimate opportunist. And I, I think that he will say and do anything, number one, to get money to get reelected. And number two, I'm sure there is a certain amount of vanity and uh, pompousness, if you will, arrogance 
involved. Um, and again, the things that he has voted for, none of which are Republican or conservatively focused ideas. And I think people need to re- remember that, especially come election time. Um, that's and, what and that's what I had. That's what I literally was LOLing on when I read the Arizona Republic this morning. I do laugh when I read it sometimes, and I laughed this morning. One of the one of the reasons, one of the main reasons, the story said these uh, co- these Republicans are supporting him is because he steered money to secure the border. Well, if that is your issue. I don't know why you wouldn't go with your party, which has been trying to do this and get this on the map and has been wrangling Democrats for years to get serious about the border. Why do you go for the weak tea on the one issue that you say is motivating you when you have the strong tea in your own party? I, I have to take a break, but you're, this is a big issue, and I'm happy to revisit it when we come back with you if you want. I'm Seth Liebson, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, conversation about military and the candidates uh, who run on their uh, on their military credentials. And also, uh, I think we're going to talk about candidate signs uh, with Rob. Go ahead, Rob, if you're still there. Okay, yeah, I am. And uh, thank you very much for keeping me. I, I think, uh, from what I've seen, remember, too, I mean, Gabby Giffords, he was married to. She was a Democrat. I don't know what he was beforehand. Uh, maybe there was some, uh, you know, pillow talk and decided that uh, he, he'd go ahead and be a Democrat. I don't know. Um, but, again, it's a principal thing. Um, the, other, the other thing with the signs, um, the only sign I saw, and there's so many out there, that showed what political party they were attached to was Paul Gozar. Mm. And, you know, he was a Republican. And everybody, <laughs> the one guy out. you don't need, <laughs> you don't need. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I guess he's, he's our congressional candidate on the Republican side out here in the uh, boonies on the West side. But, but, you know, you, you find, and I think, I think Kristen Cinema did this too. Um, they didn't list their political party on any of their signs. So for the average driver going past, you know, all these signs that you see on the corners everywhere, you don't really know what party they're from. You don't really know what they stand for. You don't really know uh, what their positions are. And you, you really don't know uh, how they're going to turn out. Is it fair but, for uh, me to say you might be expecting too much from a sign? Well, no. I, well, I, I don't think you can read a sign and say you're going to find out you know, what these people stand for and what they're all about. I think I think I come down on the side of this which is uh, that citizenship requires effort. And uh, while, you know, the more the better as far as information you can get from a sign, of course, uh, it's, right. it, it, it's, it's, it's a little too easy for me to say that's, that's, that's all you need to see is the sign to get everything you just asked for. I want people to do their research. I want people to look into these candidates. I don't want them to go based on just a sign or a TV ad or a story in the Arizona Republic. I don't want them to yeah. go with just one statement or one sentence or one three or four or, minute or the, video. Or that they were Trump endorsed. Yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, none of this gets you that far. I guess it gets you far enough if you're Trump endorsed to know you're a Republican. 
But then, you know, you look at the various endorsements and some make more sense than others. I think everyone has to do their research. I thought the I think the other side of of the interesting debate about or discussion about signs, Rob, is the overwhelming number of Republican signs compared to Democratic Party candidate signs. Uh, even if they don't mention the party, um, how how many Democrat signs have you seen compared to Republicans? It must be a ratio of one to ten minimum. Well, I don't know because they don't. I they do. Don't it's about party. one to ten, and the reason for this. The reason for this is because, and this is something we as a party have got to figure out, we don't want back rooms and, 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 and smoke-filled ones at that, but we have got to figure out some way of dealing with the issue that the Democrats, Mark Kelly's a good example, they know exactly what they're going to go into the general with, and they know exactly what wand to pass over for the uh, pass over the head in the primary race and thus they don't beat themselves silly in these primaries handing to republicans the talking points for the general the way we republicans do every two years we engage in these primaries which great important part of the process i get it but why is it that the democrats are so damn unified and 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 don't slit each other's uh, throats in front of the media and to the other party. And we Republicans aren't. Uh, that is something that I think is going to plague us until we figure it out, because come election, whoever you voted for in the primary, well, their opponent in that primary wrote the DNC and the Democratic Party's candidates talking points for the previous six, if not 12 months. And, you know. Yeah, Katie Hobbs has a little bit of a trouble and a little bit of a problem, but she's clearly going to be the nominee. And it's obvious what the Democratic Party has done to get her there. Same with same with Mark Kelly, same with almost every Democratic candidate running. Why is it the Republicans that are the ones that always have these vicious fights within within about a two to three percent margin of difference on ideology, if even that? If even that, people that probably would vote indistinguishably from one another. Yeah, there's considerations, sure, a lot of considerations that go into what decision you're going to make. But it just seems to me we have a lot of uh, a real lack of self-knowledge and we have a real lack of uh, of a party establishment that doesn't take the generals as seriously as the Democratic Party does and takes the primaries too casually as opposed to the way the Democratic Party does. And I think I think it's going to be I think it's going to be our downfall. I think it has been and I think it's going to continue to be our downfall. Let me work in Mike real quick here from Maricopa. Mike, hi. Real quick, Seth. Yes. Uh, Caro Quintero, the guy that's believed by the United States government to have had a hand in the torture and killing of DEA agent Kiki Camarena, uh-huh. was yep. captured. He was captured. Yellow Rib- uh, Red Ribbon Day was named after him, right? Yes, sir. Uh, he was captured in Sinaloa, uh, the state of Sinaloa in Mexico, and unfortunately, during the operation. Uh, there was a Black Hawk helicopter that crashed, and there were 14 Mexican Marines that died. But they did capture Caro Quintero, mm-hmm. and the United States has requested immediate extradition of him. And that's all I have to say. It's a good day in America. Another dirtbag's been uh, scooped up 
and uh, he's going to get the pay. Mike, thank you for that call. And my only response to you is more like that. That is a good day, Mike. Thank you for that. Let me hit our uh, commercial break. As, an, as I do, put in a word for um, my friends at Y-Refi who are offering a really remarkable investment opportunity. If you're looking for such, it's a fixed no-load interest rate, up to 10.25% return for investors, all in a secure collateralized portfolio. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm with investors who do really well for others. Uh, by uh, doing good for others, helping them get out of debt the right way, paying off their debts. Check them out at investyrefi.com if that's of interest to you. Investyrefi.com or give them a call at 855-316-3087. Be back with some closing thoughts. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, and thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. Uh, the interview with uh, Catherine Coleman uh, outlined and sketched uh, probably the most important issues our society faces, and we're going to have her back and do a in-depth discussion with her about the condition of our youth. The kids indeed are not all right, um, and this isn't perhaps the wisest or smartest uh, philosophical quote I give you at the end of a show. But it's uh, from one of the teachers in Boston who uh, encountered, uh, you know, the um, the uh, the Mar- Boston Marathon bombers, the Tsarnaev brothers. And uh, though a few years back, what was this, 2012, 13, he said something I will never forget, this teacher of these uh, of these uh, young adolescents. Um, he said the problem with this demographic, these young adolescents, is that they don't know the basic narratives of their histories, or really any narratives. They're blazed on pot and searching the Internet for any factoids that they believe fit their highly dehistoricized and decontextualized ideologies, and the adult world totally misunderstands them and dismisses them, and does so at our collective peril. shouldn't be so hard to understand what's going on. You peel back just one layer of these massively horrific stories, one layer, and you can see the commonalities in each of them, including the fact that people saw these things and just didn't think that much about it or think there was much to do or that could be done or even that should be done. But I'll go back to the teacher. Teachers know things. Teachers like this certainly know things. The adult world totally misunderstands these misled youth and dismisses them at our collective peril. I'm Seth Liebson. We did a lot today. My gosh, it's a pleasure doing it, too. God bless you all, and until tomorrow, class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.